Okay. Who was that? We just went to the hall. Morning is in um, Susanna, so she wants to just. Uh, ah, okay. This the Shireen or the Hoda for uh, my son-in-law Jonathan, who has had brain cancer, was just the doctors just told him that he's officially in remission. So we're very grateful for that. And also, I had a cancer scare, and everything is fine now. And I have a new great-grandson, so I have a lot to be grateful for. And so, Gus and I were having a, something for a gratefulness. Yeah. Uh, having a, a pseudo things to be thankful. Act of kindness. This is based on act of kindness. And um, we all have things to be grateful for. And if you, if you would like to come, uh, Alicia's number is on the uh, email. Please call her and tell her you're coming. That's it. <laughs> It's cute. Okay. On uh, Tisha B'Av, we read the book of Echa. We read the book of Echa. We read it at night. And many people read it again during the day. At night, we read the book of Echa, often from a cloth that's become very popular in our times. Excuse me, may I impose on the rabbi to speak a little louder? I always say, when I get to the important part, it's going to be very loud. <laughs> Don't worry. Some places they read Megillat Echa from a cloth. looks like a little Sefer Torah. And they make a bracha. All of these minhagim, all of these minhagim are not uniform. Some places they do one thing, and some places do the other thing, and some places they do, they read Echa from a cloth and make a bracha. Of course, they don't make a bracha of Shechiyanu. When we read Megillat Esther, or the other Megillot, we make the bracha Shechiyanu as well. On, um, on Echa, I mean, when we read on Tisha B'Av, we don't even make the bracha Shechiyanu, we try to avoid making a bracha shechianu during the Shavua Shechalbo Tisha B'Av or the nine days from Rosh Chodesh or Sabbim from Shiva Sar B'Tamuz don't make, don't say shechianu, right? This is the, uh, a subject of, uh, of concern for the post-skim. Like if you eat fruit during the nine days, I mean, there's no prohibition against eating food that you like during the nine days. We don't eat meat and we don't drink wine. But if you like some sort of exotic fruit, there's no prohibition against eating that exotic fruit during the nine days. Uh, the question is, uh, what if you have to say Shechianu, like you haven't eaten that exotic fruit all year long? It's like, ah, uh, a new thing for you. It's fresh fruit, right? You have to understand. We're not talking about frozen fruit or fro- like fruit from last year 
that was frozen in some kind of warehouse someplace, and you go and you eat it this year. As good as it tastes, you don't have to make shechianu on that kind of fruit. Like very often you get apples, you can buy apples that are a year old. I mean, it doesn't say that they're a year old, but I mean, they don't advertise it. But it could be. It could be that the apples, I mean, they're kept, in, they're kept refrigerated for a very long time. So there's a problem. So we don't say Shechiyanu usually during the Shavua Shechal Botishabav, during the nine days from Rosh Chodesh, during the Shivasar from Shivasar B'Tamuz until Tisha B'Av. And so we certainly don't say Shechiyanu when we read Begilat Echa. Even though we may make the bracha about this, there are also minhagim al mikra migila. You might make that bracha. You might not make that bracha. But you definitely don't say the bracha of Shechiyanu. So what we are all agreed upon is that you read Megillat Echa on Tisha B'Av. Reading Megillat Echa, of course, means, means that, you, that you're interested in it. That it's, it's part of what makes the day. And so what we'd like to look at today, you know that Megillat Echa has five chapters in it. And the first four chapters of Megillat Echa have certain similarities. I don't mean in terms of the content, but in terms of the form. And that is that they are all, the four chapters of Echa, somehow connected. The four chapters of Echa are connected to the alphabet. Right? The first and the second and the fourth are alphabetic. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, I mean, there's maybe a little bit of a change, but we're not, you know, in the alphabet, but we're not interested in that right now. What we're interested in is that they're all alphabetized. And the third chapter, the third chapter of Echa, has a triple alphabet. Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, 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 Dalet, Dalet, Dalet. That's the third chapter of Megillat, the third chapter of Megillat, uh, Echa. So, one, two, three, four are rooted in an alphabetic presentation. Something that is not so common, but not entirely uncommon. Everybody knows Eshet Chayil is alphabetic, right? Ashrei is alphabetic. But, you know, a book, a book of the Tanakh, to be connected to the alphabet, that's a little bit odd. That's a little bit odd. The fifth chapter, which is the chapter we're interested in, the fifth chapter of uh, Echa, doesn't have an alphabet. It's not alphabetized. But there are, in the fifth chapter of Echa, 22 psukim. Now, there are, in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters. So, it's hard to imagine that these 22 psukim have nothing to do with the idea of alphabet. And so really, that the, that the tzura, the form of Megillat Echa, says loud and clear that there's something different about the fifth chapter than the four chapters preceding it. Because those four chapters are all connected to the Hebrew alphabet and represent that Hebrew alphabet. The fifth chapter of Echa, fifth chapter has 22 psukim, which is a number that reminds us of the Hebrew alphabet, but that chapter is not alphabetized. So, the fifth chapter is set aside, 
but still connected. It has something to do with Eicha, but not entirely. It's different. And the difference is that the fifth chapter of Eicha has Nechama in it. It has consolation. It's not only consolation, but it has consolation in it. The fifth chapter, if you look at the sheet, starts Zechor Hashem Mehayalanu Habita Ure'ei Et Cherpatenu Like when you turn to God and you say Zechor Hashem Mehayalanu Does it do anything? Just like sits there? That's good. The, the, uh, the, when you say Zechor Hashem Mehayalanu So you're praying. Right, that's tefillah. Zichor Hashem Mehayalan. Tefillah, by its nature, is optimistic. There is no such thing as a pessimistic prayer. You can have an unhappy prayer. You could pray out of unhappiness, but you can't be pessimistic about prayer. Because prayer means, the definition of prayer is that you're certain that it's a worthy enterprise. That's what prayer is. It doesn't make any difference how you define for yourself that prayer works or your relationship or what God is waiting to hear from you. It doesn't, that doesn't make any difference to me. What you have to understand and remember is that prayer is optimistic. Because if you're standing before God and you think that that is a meaningful act, so that says something about how you think things are going to turn out. In other words, when you saw the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, right, Yirmiyahu Anavi saw the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the first thing he does, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, is describe what he sees. A description of what you see could be overwhelmingly pessimistic. Like, 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 what do you see? You see God relinquishing his place, so to speak. I mean, what could be more pessimistic than that? It's almost as though God has been beaten in this world. I mean, even though it's hard to say such a thing. But what you see, you say, okay, I understand. I could be punished. My family will be punished. My friends will be punished. But how could I imagine that God would be banished from God's own place? So that description, description is not prayer. And description is totally pessimistic. It's like, look what happened. I couldn't even imagine this. Even though in the Torah it says it, but I still could never imagine how I feel at this moment, right? At this moment when, when uh, uh, the world has basically come to an end. So prayer is, is like extricating yourself from that pessimism. Prayer can only come to the person who, who sees the future. And future is always optimistic. When you think about the future, it's always good. It's always positive. It always contains glorious elements. That's what future is. 
It's not just the time that has not yet come, but future has content. What's going to be in the future? It's going to be good. It's not because I don't want to talk about the bad, but it's because that's what I really believe. And that's what's necessary to believe in order to daven. And that's why prayer, that's why prayer consists of Shmonesha, what we call Shmonesha, consists of pieces of, about the future. Yerushalayim, and David HaMelech, and Tzemach, David Avdecharach. These things are about the future. And prayer says, we're confident. We're confident about the future, which is different than saying that I know about it. I don't know about it exactly. But I'm confident that at the end, it will be good. That's the root of prayer. And since at the end of it, it's going to be good, so I can turn to God and say, help me find a refuah shlema for Ploni. Help me find some sort of solace for some difficulty that I am ha- having. That's based on the idea that there is a future. So you have to understand that what Yirmiyahu Anavi did, what Yirmiyahu Anavi did, he knew that he could not leave us with the inheritance of what he saw. Because what he saw and what happened and what transpired was entirely uh, uh, pessimistic. Things that could not be, that did not fit in with a reasonable theological concept. Along came Yirmiyahu Navi in the fifth chapter and he said, there's a future. We can daven. There's something to say to God, even now. Even to now. And so the last chapter of Eicha is connected to the rest of the book of Eicha because it has 22 psukim in it, which is the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But it's not really connected because it's not about the despondency of destruction, but it's about the future, about what we can daven for. And that future, that future is in the first pasuk in the chapter and in the next to the last pasuk of the chapter. The first pasuk says, Zechor Hashem Yalanu, Habitor Eyed Cherpatenu Zechor. The word Zechor means remember. When we turn to God and we say remember, we probably don't mean that if I don't remind God to remember, God will forget. That's not what we mean. Zechor Hashem Yalanu, and, and this, is, this is a rule. Uh, take it as a rule. I can't explain it now, but it's a rule. When you say to God, remember, what you mean is, I will remember. I will remember because memory, the memory of the past, remembering the past, is the one thing that ensures that there's a future. Because once you stop remembering what happened, you don't exist within the stream of history. You're just gone. Like this, you don't have a past. You say, so where do you come from? Nowhere. And what did your ancestors do? Nothing. So you also are not going anywhere. But if you remember, if you remember what happened, the only point of remembering that I know of is that there is a future.
that comes out of this remembering. So that's the first pasuk in the fifth chapter. If you look at the 19th pasuk, you have this absolutely amazing pasuk which Yirmiyahu included. After Paul, let's look at the pasuk Yudchet. You know pasuk Yudchet is this baby. Like, how bad is it? Al har tziyon sheshamem shualim hilchubo. We all know. The end of Gemara, the end of Makot. Rabbi Akiva and his friends. Right, so the friend said, Oy vey, shualim hilchubo. How terrible. How much more terrible could anything be? Rabbi Akiva said, Okay. That's the prophecy in the in Echa. Now we're going to go on to better things. Al har tziyon shel shamein. When Yirmiyahu said it, he meant he meant this is the worst thing imaginable. It's the breach. You know what the Beit Hamikdash is? The Beit Hamikdash is a boundary. It's a boundary. It says in the Torah several times, Vizar hakarev yumat, just like it matan Torah. At Matantara, not everybody could go running up the mountain. This this place that was designated by God for Matantara, only Moshe Rabbeinu could go up on the mountain. And the Beit HaMikdash is the same. It's a boundary. Not everybody can go. Shualim Hilchubo doesn't just mean wolves or weasels or whatever Shualim are, are running around at the Beit HaMikdash and nobody's bothering them because... Of course they're running around in the Beit HaMikdash and no one's bothered. There's no one there. But they don't know that it's a Beit HaMikdash. So what is this so, so frightening about this idea that the Shualim, that the wolves are running around? What? Foxes. Foxes. There's a difference? The fox is a three-letter word. It's gravel. And wolf is a five-letter word. That makes a big difference. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't know what a fox is. I don't know what a wolf is. I know other things. What? Ah, I mean, I would have had that opportunity had I lived here. Oh. Okay, good. We've clarified that. I guess. I guess in most things, when it comes to words, I definitely, you know, are very cloudy about the meaning of most words. But the, the point is not that the foxes foxes ran around in the Beit HaMikdash. The point is that there was no one to stop them. It's like, it's like you know, when you, your house is desolate and the doors are open and the door and the windows are open, so of course you're not going to know what you're going to find in the house if you leave it for a year. Who's going to move in? But here, Shualim, El Chubo means that there's no one else there. There's no one else. I mean, there's no one to say, shoot them out. There's no one to even maintain this, that last remnant of sanity. And even that's gone. Shualim Hilchubo. And then Yirmiyahu Anavi says, for us, he says, Pasuk Hashem Can you imagine somebody who's looking at the destruction of the temple? And uh, and Shualim uh, Hilchubo says, "Ata Hashem, you Hashem lo Hashem. This is your place forever and ever. Kis Achaladova. Dova means forever. Kis Acha, your seat is there forever and ever. 
So you see that this is a new vision. This is something else, he says, that Yirmiyahu figured this out on his own. You can destroy a building. You can even break down the barriers that kept out unreasonable elements. But you can't destroy the place. The place remains. That place was designated, according to Chazal, at the time of the creation of the world. Certainly Avraham Avinu went to sacrifice Yitzchak at that place. The place, place, is not, the place is not destructible. Can't do anything about the place. Ata Hashem. And then, does this mean Netzach is forever? Another word for Tishkachenu means forget. And what are we asking? Lama, Lama, why does it appear to us that Lanetzach Tishkachenu Tazvenu Lorechemin? It means we put ourselves in God's hands. We don't even think that we can do the proper tshuva that's necessary to get back to where we should have been. On the other hand, we think that God will help us. And this is the, a basic idea in, in tshuva. That tshuva is a tremendous obstacle. It's hard for us to understand how we can overcome our own instincts to be the way we are and we kind of assume that's what the Gemara says if you just try and you open up a little opening the size of the eye of a needle that's small small opening then HaKadosh Baruch will help you with all the rest getting uh, to this state of tshuva. So we see that uh, the fifth chapter of Eicha, even though it contains many psukim about the destruction, also is a change of force and attitude. And it says to us, we have to daven. I have to trust that if we do what we can do, as meager as it is, as unimpressive as it might be, HaKadosh Baruch will help us because the makom, the place, was the, the building was destroyed, but the place continues to exist. And the existence of that place is ensured, is ensured in history as remaining, uh, as remaining there for us. And Lulay the Mr. Fida, that means if I weren't afraid that you would find me a little bit annoying, I would say that in history, it's rather amazing that all the nations who conquered Eretz Israel wanted to protect that place. And they didn't build a housing project. They built a, a mosque. They kept it somehow different. It's not the same. I sort of like I would say, uh, I would even say they, they kept it for us. They made it ready for us by making sure that its special nature would be, would be preserved. So this is what this is what Yirmiyahu Hanavi says in the fifth chapter of, of Echa. Now there's a, a, a certain matter that I would like to, I'd like to discuss.
And that matter is, you know, having like, you know, presented the fifth chapter to some extent, I'd like to say, to remind you of the fact that Yirmiyahu wrote a book, a big book, which has many chapters in it. And um, I remember when I was a kid, they taught us Yirmiyahu in, uh, in yeshiva. We didn't like it. We didn't like it. It was like the same thing over and over again. And, um, but they didn't stop. Just because we didn't like it, you know, I guess teachers assume that pain is the basic element of good teaching. And if you inflict pain on the students, so then you're doing your job. I'm not sure, 100% sure that that's true, but uh, it's hard for people to change what they've done for many years. Like we've been doing this for many many years like making students unhappy and it's hard to readjust but I'm going to ask a question you know that Yirmiyahu Navi prophesied for 40 years before the destruction of the temple the first temple the destruction of the first temple was in 586 BCE 586 BCE it's a good date to remember right you know it it comes up from time to time so if you know it, you know it, 586 B.C.E. It was 40 years before 586 B.C.E., like 585, like 470, 425. I mean, four, five, 625 is 40 years before. He prophesied in Yerushalayim for 40 years. For 40 years, no one paid attention to Yirmiyahu Hanavi. That's amazing. He was a prophet. He was a great personality. But no one paid any attention to him. His speeches, his lectures, his teachings are all connect, collected in a book. And that book, strangely enough, is called Yirmiyahu. However, he wrote another book, as we have seen, called Echa. Now, you know, in the Tanakh, the regular Tanakh, there are three divisions. There's Torah, there's Nevi'im, and there are Ketuvim. And it's not always clear to us what these divisions are about. But what I'd like to address right now is the fact that the book of Yirmiyahu is one of the Nevi'im. It's a prophetic work. Whereas the book of Echa, the book of Echa is in the Right? Now, how come Yirmiyahu's big book is a Navi? Well, clearly he was a Navi. He should be in the Naviim. But he was also a Navi when he wrote Eicha. So why isn't Eicha in the Naviim? Why is Eicha someplace else with the Ketuvim? So there is a Ma'amar that Rav Chutner Zichrono Levrocha wrote which is in his collected works on Shavuot. And he makes the following, he makes the following, brings up the following possibility. And he says, he says, Nevi'im, the books of Nevi'im were prophecies that were meant to be spoken to B'nai Yisrael. And after they were spoken to B'nai Yisrael, they were written down. So you know that Jeremiah had a student Baruch ben Neriah. And as in the case of many great men, 
The student was responsible for writing it down. Yirmiyahu himself. He said it orally to Bnei Israel. He's walking around the streets of Yerushalayim. He'd get the people together and he'd say, this is what God told me to tell you. And Baruch Ben-Neria would write it down. So we end up with the book of Yirmiyahu, which was originally, which was originally spoken by Yirmiyahu Anavi and then written down. The book of Ketuvim, the book of Ketuvim, according to Rav Hutner at least, the, book of, the books of Ketuvim are books that were intended to be written and were not spoken to B'nai Israel. So that, for example, Tehillim, the book of Tehillim, David HaMelech wrote, wrote his Tehillim, and he write all the Tehillim, but he wrote many Tehillim, and David HaMelech wrote these Tehillim, and those Tehillim were the basis of the book called Tehillim. But my connection to that, to the Tehillim, my first connection that I read to the book of Tehillim was to a book. I never heard David HaMelech say the Tehillim. He wasn't walking around Yerushalayim and, and uh, announcing that he had just written a new series of Tehillim. I learned the Tehillim from the book. So he says, the books of Nevi'im were originally were originally books, were originally spoken to B'nai Yisrael and then written down. The book of Ketuvim, the books of Ketuvim were originally written down and studied by B'nai Yisrael. So he says, so what difference does that make? What difference does that make? So he says, look. He says, take a look at this Pasuk. Take a look at this Pasuk in uh, Yirmiyahu. See the Pasuk in Yirmiyahu? On page 2. Yirmiyahu Anavi said, How long will the Babylonian exile be? Shivim Shana. It'll be 70 years. That's what Yirmiyahu Anavi said. At the same time, there was another prophet who was a Navi Sheker whose name was Hananiah ben Azur. Those of you who may have learned the book of Yirmiyahu might remember him appearing. So Hananiah ben Azur said, no, two years. Don't worry. It'll come, it'll go. Hananiah ben Azur, of course, was lying. He was a false prophet. And Yirmiyahu said 70 years. Yirmiyahu said 70 years. So we have the book of Daniel. We have the book of Daniel. There's another pasuk. Is a reference to Daryavesh. This is a little, a little bit um, annoying here. You know Daryavesh? There was Bavel, Modai, Yavon, Roma. These were the four conquerors of Eretz Israel. First was Bavel, well, first was Ashur, but they. The Assyrians only kicked out the ten tribes. The Babylonians kicked out only two tribes, but that was everybody. So there was Babel, Badai, Yavan, Roma. The Medes, the Greeks, the Romans. 
they were the ones who who created the diaspora. They created this. Now the king of Madai, his name was Daryavesh. He ruled for one year. So who exiled the Jews of 586 BCE? I told you that day before. Who exiled them? The Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, who took over? According to this description, the Medes. M-E-D-E-S, Madai. How long did they rule the world? One year. After the Medes, who came? No. After the Medes came the Persians. After the Medes came the Persians. The Persians, I didn't mention the Persians. Ah, so let's start over again. There were the Babylonians, and then there were the Medes. The Medes don't count, because they were only there for a year. He was only there for a year. After the Medes, there was... Who came after the Medes? The Persians. After the Persians were the Greeks, and after the Greeks were the, were the Romans, right? The Romans finally kicked the Jews out of Eretz Israel, and only in uh, modern times have we been able, uh, been able to return. That's like 2,000 years. So, I'm looking at this Pasuk in Daniel. Daniel, Pinoti Basfarim. He says, Ani Daniel. You know Daniel? Daniel was exiled with the Babylonian exile. Daniel went to Babel and became a page in the Senate. You know they have these like young bright guys who know a lot of, and today girls also, they know languages and they know things and they look good and they play football and they run, you know, marathons and they work for the government. The Vukhadnetsar also had people like that. He had people like that. Who did he want? He wanted people who were young, who were smart, who spoke many languages. And Daniel and his friends were included in this course. Eventually, Daniel and his friends annoyed everybody because they didn't want to eat non-kosher food, which is not you know, so good for social relations. And also, Daniel insisted on davening three times a day which in the, meeting, in the middle of an important meeting might be seen as being a little bit kind of uh, not so practical. So that was so Daniel eventually and his friends end, ended up in this uh, lion's den. Right? If you don't remember the story from the Tanakh, you should minimally know the Negro spiritual. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe in Efrat you don't study Negro spiritual. But, but... <laughs> okay, so this pasuk says, listen to the pasuk. The pasuk says, So here's Daniel. He's in Bavel. And he wants to go back to Eretz Israel. Now, what did, what did Yirmiyahu Navi say? How long is it going to take till you go back to Eretz Israel? Seventy years. So he thought, obviously, Daniel thought that the seventy years had passed. They should be going back to Eretz Israel. If you learn this Rashi, we haven't got time now. But if you learn the Rashi, you would see that Rashi says, the problem was that we didn't know how to count the seventy years. Because the exile, the Babylonian exile, didn't happen in a minute. There was Yehoiachim, there was Yehoiachim, there was Sidkiyahu, there were different 
kings who were sent into exile and then they returned. There was a partial exile, a full exile. And we didn't know exactly. So along came Daniel and he said, what did he say? Binoti basfari. I want to look carefully into the books. Into what books? Into the books that are written about this topic. Because which book is not sufficient? Which book is not going to answer the question? The book of Yirmiyahu. Because when Yirmiyahu said to the people in Yerushalayim 70 years, he neglected to tell them how the 70 years are to be counted. And so Rav Huttner said this, you know the difference between Nevi'im, the books of Nevi'im, and the books of Ketuvim are? That the books of Nevi'im can give you information, the kind of information that you can grasp orally. So Yirmiyahu said, 70 years. But he didn't say exactly when it starts and when it finishes and what has to happen and how, what has to transpire because that's not what you teach in oral discourse. But Daniel, who wanted to know exactly, he wanted to know exactly when this would take place, he had to look in the written works, in the written books. Another way of saying that is, Nevi'im can tell you about Geulah, they can tell you about redemption, but Ketuvim will tell you about Kate's Geulah, the, the exact date when the Geulah will come. And we all know that the book of Daniel mysteriously contains information about Kate's Geulah, about the end of the exile. Of course, we don't understand so well what Daniel told us. And in history, many dates have been brought up which proved to be uh, incorrect. But in theory, the date is there. And if you learn it, you'll know that date. And if you learn it, you'll know that date. So Rafutta made this distinction. That Nevi'im are less precise. And Ketuvim are more precise. So what is it about Eicha that is more precise than, than Yirmiyahu? What is it about Eicha that's more precise than Yirmiyahu? So for this I would like you to look at this Medrash at the bottom of the first page. There's a Medrash in Vayikra Rabba which says this, Zeb Moshe, they're like the sixth word. There's a Pasuk in Eov that they keep, uh, they said drashot over and over again. Remember that Pasuk in the beginning of the book of Shemot? And Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in the house of the Pharaoh. And then he went out into the, into the city. He saw how difficult it was, how much suffering the people were doing. So the Medrash says, Mara'ah. I mean, what exactly did he see? I mean, they were working, they were building buildings, they were, but what was the Seville? I mean, I mean uh, today, uh, people build buildings all the time. People who work at building, people work at building, we don't say 
that they're suffering. I mean, sure, they carry heavy loads and they work in difficult situations, but that's their work. What's my Yarbasivlotam? What did he see? That's the question of the Midrash. The answer is he saw a man-sized burden being carried by a woman. Al-Katan, a burden for an adult being carried by a child. Masoi al and a young man's burden, a young man's burden be carried by an old man. And so Moshe Rabbeinu reorganized that the people were so distraught, they were unable to distinguish who should carry what. They weren't able to make this simple kind of evaluation that the stronger people should carry the heavier burdens and the weaker person. That's the Sivlotam, that's what he saw. Not that they were working, not that they were building cities for the Egyptians, but that they had no way, they had no way of evaluating who they themselves were. They'd lost touch with their own identity. They couldn't tell who was weak and who was strong, who was old and who was young. Imagine such a situation. And he straightened it out. He says, you did this, God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Chayecha. He says, in the future, you, Moshe Rabbeinu, you're going to teach B'nai Yisrael, Hilchot Nidarim. You know, a neder is when you take an oath. You take an oath, I'll give a certain amount of money or something. You, know, you take an oath, that's a serious matter. Because you read the Midrash. You say, what has an oath got to do with Moshe Rabbeinu solving a problem? What was it that, that Moshe Rabbeinu did for which he got the solution of teaching B'nai Yisrael, the people of Israel, about oaths? I saw a wonderful, a wonderful Torah by... Rav Nosson of Nemerov. You know, Rav Nosson of Nemerov is the outstanding student of Rav Nachman of Braslav. Right? Now, you don't have to dance at Kikar Tzion in order to appreciate Rav Nachman of Braslav. You know, a man of great insight. And his Talmud, Rav Nosson, was also blessed with this wondrous insight. You look at the text, the old text, then you see new things. So Rabbi Nassim said, Nassim said this, you know when you make a uh, neder, you make a neder, let's say somebody says, Kodam alai apples. I don't want to eat apples. And like, you know, it's good for the diets, though you say, Kodam alai a piece of cake, it doesn't last so long, you know. But you could say that. He said, I'm not going to eat cake anymore. Just not going to eat it. Every cake is forbidden. So the Torah says that if you say that, the cake is like a piece of chazer. Imagine that. And there aren't 613 mitzvot in the Torah, but there are 614 mitzvot in the Torah. The 614th is, I'm not going to eat the cake. That's the 614th. But the wondrous thing about Nidarim, which differentiates it from the Torah, is, is, 
that a person can have charata. A person can have charata. He can, he can change his mind. If you have a, I remember when I was in yeshiva years and years ago, there was a Rosh yeshiva. We used to come in Sunday morning, every, every week, and get three guys together and be matter the neder that he made on Friday. The neder that he made on Friday was that he would never smoke a cigarette again. And he managed until Sunday morning. A Shabbos doesn't count. And so he managed till Sunday morning. That's the essence of a neder. That charata can overturn the Torah itself. Can overturn the Torah itself. Because the Torah said, you're not allowed to eat the cake. You said you're not going to eat it. But you can come back later and you can say, look, I can't do it. I can't live up to that standard. I have to ask a Beitin to disavow what I have, what I have said. So Rav Nassim said, that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe Rabbeinu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe, he said, like Moshe Rabbeinu came, what did he see? He saw people who didn't know who they were. Older people, younger people, children, men and women, old people. They didn't know. So what did he do, Moshe Rabbeinu? He straightened it out. He, he put up a little desk, a little table, and he said, I want all the names of young people, all the names of the old people. I said, he straightened it out. But if he straightened it out, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen the next day? They'll go back to be the same way that they were. And the real tragedy of it is, the real tragedy of it, as Moshe Rabbeinu understood, was that if you don't know who you are, and you don't know how you're connecting to other people, I mean, how can you do tshuva? And that was the issue in Mitzrayim. I mean, they were slaves and suffering and despondent. And what they had to do was figure out a way to reconnect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So how were they going to do that? So it was like the missing part of the Medrash is, Moshe Rabbeinu said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, look, I fixed it, but I didn't fix it. I strained it out, but I didn't straighten it out. Because it's going to happen again. I can't come here every day and put the old people here, the young people there, the strong people here, the weak people there. I can't do that. It's not going to work. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, remember Nidarim. Remember Nidarim. Nidarim. Nidarim teach us that a person, a person can, can change. Can, can, can change his previous opinion. He can have charata. He can be unhappy about what he has done and what has been. And that charata is so powerful that it will change everything in his world. And so that even though these people are despondent, are unhappy, are unable, can't even govern, but charata they can have. And so, the book of Eicha, the book of Eicha teaches us about Kate's Hagalut, the end. And it guarantees us that there will be an end to the Galut because of the notion of Tshuva, which is connected to Nidarim, which teaches us, teaches us that a person has this great power in his hands he doesn't have to be a good person at first. He doesn't have to change everything about himself. He doesn't have to know what tshuva is about. 
that, that, that bad becomes good and unreasonable becomes reasonable and people who are unable to do the right thing suddenly are able to do the right thing. But the beginning of tshuva is this feeling of despondency about what I have done. That's it. That does it. And that's what Yirmiyahu Hanavi taught us in the book of Echa. So Yirmiyahu Hanavi in the book of Yirmiyahu told us that the exile will be a 70 year exile. But in the book of Echa he taught us that tshuva is possible if we only do harata. If we only see ourselves as not having accomplished what it is that we were supposed to accomplish, not having done what we should have done, not have gotten to where we should have been, that's enough. That's enough. And from that point on, we say, I wish you all well over the fast, as they say in England, I think. But I like it. And um, remember, if you have a Shaila Tishabov about fasting, ask a rabbi. No, really. I mean, you should ask a rabbi because sometimes people fast when they shouldn't fast, and sometimes people don't fast when they should fast. So it's good to ask a rabbi. Okay. No, I, I don't need the sheets. I just... Uh, I'll leave it here. That's it? <laughs>